Welcome to the Commune Podcast and this special masterclass with David Kessler. I'm your host, Jeff Krasno. David Kessler is one of the world's foremost experts on grief and loss. He is the author of six books, including the bestseller, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. He has also co-authored two books with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, including On Grief and Grieving, which updated her famous five stages of grief. When David was young, he witnessed a mass shooting while his mother lay dying in a hospital, two events that propelled him towards what has become his life's purpose. Now he counsels those experiencing grief, as well as teaching teachers, nurses, police, and first responders about end of life and trauma. This episode of the Commune Podcast is an excerpt from David Kessler's Commune course, Help for the Hurting Heart. You can watch this course for free for five days at onecommune.com slash grief. Over the next hour, David will introduce you to the river of grief. If you think of grief as a river, you can better understand your experience with it. Maybe you tiptoe slowly into the river or wade into it for a long time as a loved one is dying or your marriage is slowly ending. Others are thrown into the river of grief with just one phone call with the news that someone has died suddenly. No matter how you go about getting into the river, David will help you understand that the river of grief will take you towards your healing. It will take you where you need to go. I hope David's words help you on your journey. What is grief? To me, grief is always the death of something. It is the death of someone we love. It is also, you know, I think about a breakup as the death of the relationship. I think of a divorce as the death of the marriage. I think of a job loss as the death of that paycheck with those people in that place. So I think one thing that works against us is when we sometimes will think for losses other than death. Mine doesn't count because it's not a death. And your loss counts. We're going to be talking a lot about this. Your loss counts. Your trauma counts. This matters. Whatever it may be, I'm glad you're here and you're going to find some relief. So when we talk about grief, grief is a reflection of a connection that has been lost. We grieve those we love. We grieve those we like. We grieve those we dislike. We even grieve those we hate. We don't grieve people we're indifferent to. So we get connected to people. It can even be someone you've never met. We've all been connected to perhaps a singer who died or a well-known figure because they connected us to parts of our life. So grief is about connections. And your grief is as unique as your fingerprint. No one else is going to have your grief. Literally, even if your parent dies, your siblings are going to grieve differently because your relationship 
was different with that parent. So all of us have the most unique grief in the world. Now, when we talk about grief, there's big griefs and there's small griefs. We talk about those as micro and macro. It's not to ever imply anything's less than another. We can grieve over people. We can grieve over places. We can grieve over things. If your house burns down, that's a grief. If your loved ones die, of course, that's a grief. A divorce, of course, that's a grief. If you've been robbed, something's been stolen from you that mattered that you were connected to, that's a grief also. Having a wedding canceled, having a trip postponed or canceled, all those are ways that we grieve. So in this video, I'm going to be talking about the death of a loved one. But everything I say, please apply that to other losses because it can be applied to estrangement, to a job loss, whatever it may be. One of the things that happens is we can compare our losses. The moment we hear there's big and little losses, we want to go into comparison. And the mind likes to compare. But the reality is when we compare, first of all, if you win, you lose. And you've left your heart. And grief is of your heart. You've left your heart and you've moved into your mind. So we talk about what's the worst loss? Is the worst loss a spouse of 40 years? Is it a child? Is it this? Is it a terrorist attack? All that. Uh, and some people will go, well, no, it's, it's my loss. The reality is when people ask me, which is the worst loss? My answer is always yours. Your loss is the worst loss. And I think sometimes we forget we want our grief witnessed. We want it to be seen by others and not compared. Some people mistakenly think that grief is like a pie. That if you've got some grief, you're taking away a piece of mine. And that's not a reality. In the pandemic, I was walking with a friend one day safely and all that as we were doing. And um, I met one of my neighbors and she says, oh, you, you work in grief, right? And she started crying about how she had to cancel her wedding and how much that meant to her. And it was going to be postponed for she didn't know when for three months, six months or a year. And she was so sad about it. And I was comforting her. And after she walked away, the person who was with me went, that was just horrible for her to go on and on about her wedding when you've had a child die? And I go, she didn't take part of my grief by having some of her own. I'm very secure in my grief. Your loss doesn't take away from mine. We all get to have different losses. So that's so important to think when we talk about this idea of comparing. You know, to find security in your grief, if someone else has grief, they get to have it and you get to have yours. Another concept to think about 
is I can't see your grief. Grief is what's on the inside. Mourning is what we do on the outside. I can't look at one person and go, she's crying more than she is. She's got more grief. I can never see your grief. I can only see your acts of mourning on the outside. You'll hear so many times people go, well, you look fine. Okay, doesn't mean I'm not in deep grief. You can't see it. And so everyone grieves in their own way. It's really important to know that the other people are going to grieve differently than you and you're going to grieve differently than them. And that's okay. I often talk about you come from a long line of dead people. Literally every ancestor you have had has died. There's something built into our soul, our psyche. We know how to do this. You don't have to be trained in this. You were built to handle a number of hits this lifetime. You were actually built to handle loss. But what went wrong? Why do you even need this course or books? Because our society has now taught us to be strong, to be productive, those feelings are weak, get over it, move on. And that has really harmed our healing and some of the most natural things that we would do. So grief has now become hidden away many times in our world. And because we have so few models, it's easy for you to think you're doing grief wrong and you can't do it wrong. And when we buy into what society says, we also begin to judge ourselves and we have expectations of ourselves. And so many times I'll say to people, you're judging yourself and they're like, no, I'm not. I just think I should be further along. And I say, well, that is a judgment that you are in the wrong place in your grief and you're never in the wrong place in your grief. So one of the questions that comes up a lot, how long will I grieve? How long is my sister, my wife, my husband, my partner, how long are they going to grieve? Whenever anyone asks me how long someone's going to grieve, I always say, well, how long is a person going to be dead? Because if they're going to be dead for a long time, you're going to grieve for a long time. But that doesn't mean you will always grieve with pain. My work in this video series and with others in my online groups is to help people in time grieve with more love than pain, but at their own pace and in their own way. Now, in divorce, it's different. You know, when we talk about other types of losses, it may not be about loving that person anymore. It may be how present can you be to release the pain and find the growth. When I think about the timeline in grief, I always tell people there is no timeline in grief. There are certain markers that I use when working with people. It helps me know where they are in their process. So let me line them up just a little bit for you. The first one 
is what we call anticipatory grief. Anticipatory grief is a healthy grief we all go through. You've been in anticipatory grief, probably working on that a lot of your life. We grow up knowing ever so slightly in the back of our mind, someday our parents are going to get old and die. And that's that anticipatory grief working very slowly. Then comes the day someone we love and know will have a diagnosis. And when they get the diagnosis, we may go to a deeper level of anticipatory grief. We know that it could be closer. And this is a healthy process that we do. Then when the death occurs, we then go into the acute phase. The acute phase is when it's just happened in your world. It is different for everyone. For some people, the acute phase is a week or a month. Others, it's six months, nine months. There's no one right place that fits everyone. But when you're in the acute phase, it feels like it just happened and you were in free fall. And like I said, that can last for months. You were in free fall. When people are beginning to come out of the acute phase, they will say things like, feel like I'm just beginning to catch my breath. I feel like I'm just beginning to get my feet on the ground again. You are not done with the grief. You are far from over the grief, but you've sort of found a floor. You're not in that free fall anymore. But remember, that's different for everyone, even members of your own family. Everyone's going to do it differently. Then we go into what I call early grief. Now, I want you to think about what early grief is. If I went down to the local busy street or a shopping mall and said to people randomly, what's early grief? People would say, early grief? I don't know. What's that, the first three days? Early grief is at the first month. Early grief for me, I believe, is your first two years of grief. And that's not even an exact number. We're all a little different. But many people, it brings a shift to realize, oh, something's not wrong with me. I'm not doing it wrong that I'm still feeling such intense pain. I'm actually still in early grief in those first two years. Then we move into what I call mature grief. And that is where we can work on eventually finding more love than pain. So but think about how if you didn't know this layout, you might think that we're doing it wrong, and you're not. One of the fears we have around grief is it's going to be too much. It's going to be overpowering. People will tell me all the time, I can't cry. If I start crying, I'm going to cry forever. Or I just can't stop crying now. I want to tell you, I have been with thousands and thousands of people who are crying. Everyone has eventually stopped crying. It is not true that you will never stop crying. Or people are afraid if they feel their anger that they're going to let, you know, it's never going to stop. 
So just know there will be a shift or a change in your feelings. You feel one, another one will come. The only way out of the pain is through the pain. In the last book I wrote, Finding Meaning, it was interesting. I was researching, and I never thought I'd be saying this, researching buffaloes, right? Buffaloes in a grief book, who would have thought it? But it turns out when buffaloes sense a storm coming, they actually run into the storm. And by running into the storm, they minimize the pain. They minimize their discomfort. They minimize how long they're in the hard part. What do we do with grief? We run from grief. We keep it like 10 feet behind us or a mile behind us, and it becomes this steady companion that just makes our life miserable. So the idea that you're doing this series will help you immensely to really be present for it. The reality is we cannot heal what we don't feel. So we have to feel it. We have this inclination in our society that we should fight it. We should want it to be over. But we have to feel it. Even when people around us are saying, you've got to move on. It's time to move on. Shouldn't you be over it by now? Maybe you sometimes tell yourself, I should be further along. I should move on. But you have to stay present for the feelings. I know they're intense. I know they're hard. But we have to stay present because what we resist persists. So just look at, do other people have those expectations? You should be over it. Do you ever have those expectations? As I've already mentioned, the reality is you're not broken. You don't need fixing. And when we hear those comments like, isn't it time you moved on? Or you've got to get over them. It can easily feel like people think you're broken and need fixing. So don't take that on. What we do need is we need our grief to be witnessed. We need to be seen. We need other people to see this pain we're in, that this loss mattered. You know, we talk a lot about, um, in science, there's this concept of we have mirroring neurons. And mirroring neurons, uh, we talk about often in babies, that babies have these mirroring neurons. You can see videos on the internet, on YouTube, about the, the baby sitting with their mom, and the mom smiles, and the baby smiles back, and the mom looks, and the baby looks, and the mom looks serious, and the baby gets worried. The baby mirrors its mother. We forget that we don't grow out of those mirroring neurons. We still have them. I, I know it happened to me recently that I thought about it, I was just walking down the street, and as I'm walking down the street, uh, a guy I passed went, howdy. And I went, howdy. I don't say howdy. I'm not a howdier, but he howdied me. I howdied him back. My mirroring neurons kicked in. 
We want to be witnessed. We want to be seen. We want to be mirrored by one another. And grief must be witnessed. You weren't meant to be an island of grief. We need others. I was touring in Australia. And when I was touring, I was doing a, a lecture in Northern Australia. And a researcher came up to me and shared how she does research on the little villages in the rural areas of Australia. And she shared how she went to this one village. And in the village, they said, the night someone dies, the day of the person's death, everyone in the small village moves a piece of furniture or something around them, but everyone has to move something the night of the death. And the researcher said, why does everyone do that? And she said, because the next day with the family wakes up, we want them to look around and see now that their loved one has died, everything has changed. Everything has changed now that their loved one has died. How different is that in our Western world? You wake up the day after your loved one dies and everyone's going about their business. You wake up the day after the breakup and it's life as usual for everyone else. You wake up the day after the divorce, the day after the betrayal, the pet loss, whatever you may have loved and lost. Everyone's like, just another day. And your world has been deeply, deeply shattered and thrown off balance. So it's to witness and to be present for yourself. When we talk about grief, I think about grief as a river. The river of grief will take you where you need to go. Some of us tiptoe slowly into the river of grief as our loved ones getting sicker and sicker, or we see the marriage getting worse and worse, or whatever it may be, we slowly tiptoe into the rivers of grief. Others of us are just having a random good Tuesday and we get a phone call out of the blue. Someone we loved has died or leaving us or whatever, and we are thrown into the river and we are drowning. But the river of grief will take you to your healing. The river of grief will help you figure out who you are now without your loved one. And if your loved one died, it'll help you figure out how to love them in their absence. You knew how to love them when they were present. The river of grief will teach you how to love them in their absence. Picture this river. You may see a little stick in the river. What happens if a stick falls in the river? The river hits it, the stream hits it, and just pushes the stick down the river. A little stick might be something like, um, just a little stick, a little complication, might be something like, I didn't tell them I love them the day they died. And you feel bad about that for a bit, and then everyone reminds you how much your loved one knew you love them, and the stick goes down and just moves down the river, and the river's flowing again, right? 
However, maybe a huge branch falls in the river. What happens when a huge branch falls in the river? When a huge branch falls in the river, the water hits it and it begins to swirl around in a circular motion, right? It's no longer flowing down the river. That's like our grief. It's going in a circle. We feel stuck. It's not going anywhere. Fishermen call this an eddy. It's just where the water goes in a circle and isn't flowing anymore. So that's big branch is what we call a complication of grief. You may have heard, oh, someone's got complicated grief. Complicated grief means a bigger branch fell in the river. What do we need to do? We need to examine the branch, witness it, talk about it to heal it. A big branch that falls in the river of grief that complicates it is a death by suicide, an overdose, a sudden death, an unexpected death, a, um, the loss of a child. And what complicates my grief might not complicate your grief. So that's also unique. So we look at this complication to get the river flowing again. Where will the river take us? It will take us to our healing. So just think about that, this idea that there's nothing going wrong, but what does society tell you? Jump out of the river. You only got three days in the river. What are you doing in the river a year later? You should be out of the river in a year. Keep in mind, it means they don't understand it. So I hope some of these concepts will help you as you think about your grief, because what has happened to you matters. I want you to know, I take your grief seriously. I see your loss, your devastation that you're feeling, and your loss deeply mattered. And the person or what you've been through matters. And we are here for you. And together, we're going to find a way to get through this, to find a life that you can live with peace that honors you. And if it's been a loved one who's died, that honors them. For your homework, I'd love for you to think about this concept. If your grief could speak, what would it say? What does it want you to know? And I'm purposely not giving you any examples because I don't want you to even have an idea of what I think your grief should say. Really think about what does my grief want me to know? What do I need to hear? What do I need to see in my grief? Grief is about our heart, but our mind can take over and get in the way. So I thought it would be important to learn a little bit about how our mind works in grief. There are the facts that happen, and then your mind will often make up a story about that. So I'll give you an example, and this is something I do in retreats 
and in workshops. So you'll just have to imagine this playing out. I pair people up and I will say to them to name three major events in your life. Three major events. Major. And people go, bad ones, good ones. I'll go both. Make sure you've got some bad and some good, right? And I will say with the person you're partnered with, I want you to share your three major events, but I want you to share it as just the facts. No emotions, no details, just the facts. Okay, so for example, I'll do it with you. If I was going to do it, just the facts, three major things, I might say, when I was 13 years old, my mother died. In 1995, my first book came out. A few years ago, my younger son David died. Those are the facts. No emotion, no story about them, okay? Both people share their three facts, right? Bad and good. Then I say, okay, next round. We're gonna do it again, the exact same three facts but I want you to talk about them as the worst thing that happened, the worst parts, the worst way. Find something horrific or horrible about it. And someone will go, wait, the good stuff too? Yes, the good stuff too. So I'll stick with my three examples, right? They don't change. I would say, my mother died when I was 13. It was so hard. I wasn't ready to be without a mother in the world. It was so lonely and isolating. I felt so different from the world. My next event was my book being published. It was great to be an author, but I wasn't ready for the public criticism. I wasn't, I mean, it was wonderfully received, but of course my mind went to any critics or criticism and I was surprised that people could criticize you who didn't even read the book. So it was so disappointing to see you write a book and you're criticized for even trying. Then my son died. Brutal then and brutal now. Those are my three things in the worst way. Can you guess what's coming next in the exercise? Same three things, the three things never change. I ask people to now name those same three things and talk about them in the best way or something good about them. People are like, what, the bad things? Yes, the bad things. So let me go to my three examples. This is now looking at some positive aspect. My mother died when I was 13. It was so hard I wasn't ready. And it changed the trajectory of my life and gave me this amazing career. My book came out, my first book came out, 1995, once an author, always an author. It's a great platform to have. My son, 
unexpectedly died a few years ago. So brutal. And it has made me go deeper in my work. I can like help people on an even deeper level. Okay, so that's the exercise. Just the facts, then the worst way, then the positive way, right? I say to the uh, uh, attendees, what did, you, what, what did you think that was about? Why did I have you do that? People will say, to point out there's good and bad in everything, um, to find meaning, to um, see things from a different perspective, to realize there's more than one way to see things. I say all of your reasons are true, but mainly it was for you to become aware of your narrative. We all have a way we tell our story. How do you tell your story? And what you may find is how your story changes over time. For example, if you had met me in my 20s, horrible victim, horrible abandonment issues, my story would have been one of victimhood. Then I, I wanted to fit in. I didn't want to have that story. Then I sort of normalized it. Yeah, I had bad things happen in my childhood, didn't everyone? I mean, I'm sure people have had shootings and death in their childhood. No big deal. Everyone gets something. I sort of minimized it. That's how I told it. Then at a certain point, I realized it's nothing to minimize, that it's actually a story of triumph. So how have you told your story? How has it changed? Do you tell your story with a victim mentality? Do you tell your story as someone who's made it through horrible obstacles? How do we tell our stories? Because you've met people that tell their story, right? You've met the people who are like, and then this bad thing happened, there was a silver lining, and then this bad thing happened, and there was a silver lining, and then this bad thing happened, silver lining. And you're like, oh, gotcha, it's all about the silver linings. Someone else might tell a story and go, and then that happened. Oh, and as if that wasn't bad enough, then this happened. Oh, no, wait for it, there's more, right? They're telling it as, boy, bad stuff happens to me all the time. That's how they tell their story. Now, remember, the events do not change. How you tell your story can change. This is where your mind works. How you can tell your story changes. You are not the author of the facts. I'm not the author of the story of my mother dying, or my book being published, or my son dying. I am the author of how the story about those events get told. I am the author of that story. That's where I have some control. So as we talk about these old wounds, we carry them with us. And our old wounds, we project those onto our new grief. So we have the grief, but they're also colored by our old wounds. So I can remember I was doing um, 
a TV show where I was counseling someone on the TV show and I didn't have a lot of time with them. And it's interesting. They said, this happened, they feel guilty. This happened, they feel guilty. This happened, they feel guilty. And I finally said to them, when was the first time you felt that much guilt in your childhood? And they're like, oh my gosh, how did you know I've always been guilty? Because that's what they were projecting onto the current grief. So a lot of times, our old wounds will get projected onto our grief, onto our trauma. Wouldn't it be so great if we could like, I'm just dealing with my grief or trauma now, no, no old wounds, but they come in. What we do with our old wounds is we're constantly trying to heal them. So we project them onto situations and people all the time to keep recreating that situation to bring it up for healing. But then that also works on your grief. We are projection machines. I always say, if you spot it, you got it. We're these projection machines. We're always spotting our old wounds on the outside. And it's interesting if someone reflects that to us, how we process it. I'll give you an example. If something's an old wound, it lands. If something's not a wound of mine, it doesn't land. For example, someone says to me, you know, David, you're really cruel to animals. I'll go, I think you got the wrong David. No, you're cruel to animals. No, really, I'm the wrong David. Let's find that David, because that's horrible. It's just not me. I don't have a huge reaction, except let's find that person who's being cruel to animals, but it's just not me. On the other hand, if someone goes, you know, David, you can have a tone in your voice. I do not have, I do not have a tone in my voice, right? Oh, it lands. I got it, right? That's one of my wounds. It's coming out. So it's interesting to see how when we have a reaction to things, that can be an indication of our old wounds. Maybe an overreaction might be a better way of saying it. We are constantly judging others with those projections. We're constantly judging ourselves. I always say you're either holding a mirror or a magnifying glass. You're really with a magnifying glass, magnifying the wounds of others or magnifying your wounds. Or you're looking at yourself and seeing it there, right? So we go back and forth. Where do these old wounds come from? What are these old wounds? In a primal way, I can tell you what your old wounds are. You're either not enough or you're too much. That's kind of our basic. They play out in a million different ways, but you're either not enough, you're just inadequate, not enough, or you are just too much, okay? So how these play out and how I try to help people with these is to look at in our lives, usually in our childhood, there is an event. From this event, we make a conclusion. From that conclusion, we form our belief systems. So I'll walk you through an example. 
a woman shared with me. I think it was actually at a divorce workshop. She was five years old and her parents were getting divorced. So her parents are getting divorced and she doesn't quite understand it. And then one day she hears her dad is moving out. And her first thought is not dad. I love dad. I wish it was mom instead. I don't want dad to move out. And she sees her dad packing things up. She follows him from room to room. This little girl at five, six years old sees dad packing things up and loading them into a station wagon. Gets all his stuff loaded up into a station wagon. And he's about to leave. And she's standing there watching him. And she told me, do you know how any stories or books or movies, you always think there's the moment when the person turns around and goes, don't you worry, daddy's coming back for you. Don't you worry, daddy's never forgetting you. And she said she was standing there waiting for that moment. But he just got in the car and drove away without a look back. That's the event. There weren't adults around to help this young girl process it. There was no one to say, honey, this divorce is not about you. It's impacting you. We're so sorry, but it's not about you. And daddy's leaving that way has nothing to do with you. It's his feelings about the anger or the failure of the marriage whatever it is, but honey, it's not about you. She didn't have that. So what does her young mind do? It makes a conclusion. I'm not worth a look back. I'm not worth staying around for. I'm not worth being loved. And then she turns that into her belief system. Decades later, she's in this divorce workshop with me. And not only is she there to learn about her grief that she's experiencing in her divorce, but she is projecting onto this, no wonder he left. Why would anyone stay with me? I'm not lovable. Her old wounds were getting projected onto that grief. Our abandonment issues get projected onto the grief. Our past relationship wounds, our traumas can begin to shape us. You know, in some ways, I am a bit of a product of my triumphs and my wounds and everything in between. But the wounds are loud. The wounds are loud, as you know. I also think it's interesting as we talk about boundaries. When we talk about boundaries, I can remember um, I was about to embark on a 30 city book tour for my newest book. And I said to a colleague that I worked with on my team, I said, there might be one or two rare cases where something happens on a weekend. Maybe there is a big review or some news item that we might need to get posted right away. And I said, I know you don't do weekends and that's our agreement, but I'm wondering if this in this period, you would be willing to, if just one or two things came up, 
that you'd be willing to help. And this person went, that's it, I'm done. You know, I do not ever let anyone violate my boundaries that way. I have told you over and over again. And I'm like, it just said in your contract, you don't do weekends. And I'm asking, I know, but that's why I put it in contracts because they get violated. And how dare you even ask? And I went, it was just a question. How dare you? I cannot take my boundaries being violated. And I said to him, listen, was just a question. Now, what's interesting, when I talk, thought about how he became so unhinged about it, many times when it's an old wound, it's something you could have handled with a sentence but the old wound goes into effect, right? He actually could have said, I hear you might need something on the weekend. I'm so sorry, I'm still not up for it. So maybe there's a plan B you could figure out that's not me, but I, I'm so sorry, but I appreciate you being so respectful of my boundary and checking in with me on it. So boundaries, we often think are about the other person. They violated them. No, boundaries are about us holding our own boundary. And, you know, there's the saying in psychology about if it's hysterical, it's historical. And that's not meaning that anyone's hysterical in a bad way. It just means if there is an overreaction it probably means there's some history. Someone did not respect this person's boundaries in the past. Someone probably, the just asking about changing a boundary sent this person into their past. You know, boundaries are so important, they should not be too loose and not too tight. So. But you should, you know, be able to say, I want to check in on your boundary on this to make sure we're clear. It's interesting how those old wounds play out. Like my old wound is abandonment. Oh my goodness, I would see that wound playing out over and over again in my relationships. If I went to a party and met anyone or started dating someone and they told me, they had commitment issues. I was like, can we go out again? I mean, I was recreating people to abandon me again. We replay them. We project them. When we talk about our mind, I also have to mention, besides our old wounds, positive thinking. Positive thinking and positive psychology are so important. And I'm a big believer in bringing them into the world in grief and loss. It's interesting, a dear, dear friend who I've known for 30 years is Louise Hay. Louise and I knew each other before there were best-selling books and, and we knew everyone back in the day. She used to do this a Wednesday night talk that would be in a room. And on Wednesdays, if she couldn't make one, I would fill in for her. So we've known each other through the decades. And when we announced that we were doing a book on grief, 
people were so surprised, like, Louise Hay, positive thinking on grief? How can that be? There's, there's confusion about that. I remember years ago, probably around, I don't know, somewhere like 2012, 2014, Louise was in her 80s, very healthy. We were doing a lecture together at a big conference. So we were having lunch together before the lecture. And she said to me, um, David, I've been thinking, when I die, would you be willing to be there with me? And I said, of course, Louise, I, I would be honored. Is there anything going on? Are you ill? And she goes, no, no, my goodness, no, I'm completely healthy. But she said, I've been so committed to living fully. I wanna make sure when it's my time to die fully, I do that well. And I know you know how to do that. And I want some support. And I said, absolutely. And it's interesting, I got up from that lunch thinking, all right, I can never share that with anyone. And then we get up in front of hundreds of people and Luis says, oh, I just talked to David and I asked him if he'd be there when he died, when I died. And it was so interesting to see how she did not feel like whether we're talking about those bad things in life that happen, that we can't bring our positiveness to them. When we think about positive thinking, I like to bring us to a very basic level, first of all, of how our thoughts work. We have no neutral thoughts. Every thought, everything we have, we bring meaning to. If I was to show you a piece of wood that had a black core and you had not been taught what it was, and I showed you this piece of wood you might think it's a weapon, you wouldn't be sure what it is. But if you've been taught and attached the meaning that that is a pencil, you have a story now about this pencil that can solve a math equation. It can um, uh, help you with uh, uh, writing a novel. You have thoughts about everything. You have no neutral thoughts, right? So we have been raised, we do not have control over our thoughts. So if someone said to me, uh, David, that's a nice blue shirt. If I went, oh, I, 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 I don't know how it got on me, it's, it's just here. You'd be like, what? No, David, you went into your closet this morning and you chose this blue shirt. It didn't just happen to you. So this is true about our thinking. We, we've been raised, we don't have this power to choose our thinking, but we can choose our thinking. That doesn't mean we can change events that happen sometimes in our life, but we can choose the story around them. So affirmations come into this. People think about affirmations. We wanna make sure an affirmation isn't pouring pink paint on some reality. You know. If I'm driving and I have a flat tire, I it's not helpful to me. It doesn't serve me to go, 
All right, my affirmation is I don't have a flat tire. I don't have a flat tire. I don't have a flat tire. Darn it, I still have a flat tire. But the flat tire is the fact. What I affirm after that, my thinking after that is, this is going to be hard. This is going to ruin my day, ruin my night. Or, oh good, I've got a spare. I can make this work, right? So you're thinking doesn't shift always the event, but it shifts how we feel about the event. When I do lectures and workshops, we're usually uh, in big um, hotels, in meeting rooms, and we're all in this big meeting room. The next to us is some association's annual conference, and maybe down the hall is healthcare workers learning Spanish, and down the other hall is accounting. And we're in here in, in, in my uh, session, in our conference, doing grief. At the end of the day, everyone leaves. I might be there with some people who are afterwards I'm talking to, and the cleaning crews come in, uh, you know, fairly quickly. And so it's happened a number of times. Someone on the cleaning crew will go, hey, what was your group? And I go, why do you ask? And you go, well, your group was laughing the most. And I'll go, oh, we were doing grief. Grief? What kind of grief? You know, grief when a loved one dies or there's a divorce or something. And I can see their mind trying to understand. But to me, what that means is because we've been through the worst that life has to offer, it like expands our bandwidth. And when it expands our bandwidth, it expands it both ways. We are deeper in the pain and can go deeper, but we also can go deeper into the joy and into the laughter. So I think about the positive thinking to know even our worst can bring out our best. Even when we're most challenged and at our worst, we can find our best. But when we talk about affirmations, here's how I see them done in a way that's not effective. Someone will do this. My mind keeps telling me I'm stupid. All right, I'm going to get an affirmation. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use affirmations. All right, my mind's telling me I'm stupid. I'm smart. You're stupid. No, I'm smart. You're stupid. Oh, I'm so bad at affirmations. And then we beat ourselves up that we're bad at trying to be positive. I think affirmations, we have to concretize them, meaning make something concrete out of them, and then use the word and. So the example would be, I'm stupid. I'm stupid. And then I would think of a concrete example. I left early to get here on time today. And I was really smart by getting here on time today. Or I feel so unloved. I feel so unloved. And my friends tell me I'm quite lovable. Don't deny it. Add the word and. Give yourself a concrete example and then use the affirmation. 
But it is never positive thinking, especially in grief work, to deny our feelings. Your feelings have a right to exist just because they are. Many times I see people in grief going, I, I got to get rid of these feelings. They have a right to live. Jealousy has a right to live in grief. Hate has a right to live. Um, anger has a right to live. I'm not saying be angry at anyone or hate anyone, but I'm saying if you feel that feeling coming up, that you hate something, you hate whatever it is, people who have family members that they all live to, they're 100 years old and no one ever dies. If that's your feeling, acknowledging it and working with it will help. Denying your reality and pouring pink paint and go, oh no, I don't hate, I don't hate, I'm just fuming, does not help. So we wanna make sure we don't use positive thinking as a way to push down reality. You know, you can't help your loved one with illness if you're denying the reality. You can't help your loved one with an addiction if you're denying the addiction. We have to try to be honest with who we are and what we're feeling, and we have power over the story that comes after. And sometimes you'll see the positive thinking breaks down if you try to make it too simplistic. Like I remember one example, I was looking at this video in my social media feed years ago, and it was a few years after 9-11. It told the story of people who worked in the World Trade Center or had a meeting there on September 11th. And it said, you know, Susan's kids were making her late for work and she was upset at them because they were causing her to be late. Jim's car broke down. He wasn't going to get into the city in time for his meeting. Ben missed the subway and he wasn't able to, you know, catch his train on time. And then it goes on to say, and these people did not die in September 11th attack. So the message was, just remember the next time something goes wrong, it might be God intervening to help you. And it was kind of this sweet message. But then when you thought about it, you went, wait a minute, who's that God? Like that God saved everyone who was late, but everyone who was at work and got to there on time got killed? Oh, that doesn't work out. So. Think about, you know, we want to be careful. We don't add a story to try to make something work to make it seem more positive. Sometimes the reality is good people die, bad people die, right? And to not try to change what is to make it fit in a more positive way. We have to live in reality and positive thinking can be a wonderful asset in that way. And these affirmations continue to repeat. You know, we often have these repetitive, validating belief systems. You know, the goal is to raise the awareness of our negative beliefs that are coming up over and over again. We're always affirming something. And so many times, those circular beliefs 
that keep getting repeated over and over are many times the ones that are the most painful, that aren't helpful to us. So I want to explain this concept of pain versus suffering, especially when it comes to grief and trauma. There is a pain of your loved one dying. I can't take away that pain. It isn't my place to take away the pain of your loved one's death or the pain of your divorce or whatever the, the pain is that you're going through. It's my place to witness your pain and give you the dignity of your pain. Suffering, on the other hand, is what your crazy mind does. Our minds are crazy. They literally will cause additional suffering. You know, I love Annie Lamont. She's a wonderful writer. She has a great quote. She says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood that I never want to walk into alone. I live about a block from an ATM. There's times it would be safer for me to walk to the ATM at 3 a.m. than to walk into my mind at that time of night. Our mind, which we would think would be so helpful to us, can turn on us, especially in grief. We want to witness the pain, but we want to question the suffering. I really want to take a moment and thank you for watching this program. It's so important that you have taken this time to take care of yourself. It honors you. It honors those who have died. It honors your sense of self if you're dealing with a, a breakup, a divorce, or a job loss. It says that you and life matter. And one of the last things I want to tell you is you are always teaching the world about grief. You are modeling for others how to handle a death with grace, to fully feel your pain, to fully go through life, to go through the valley of life. People are watching you to let them know it's okay to grieve and there is life after death, not just for our loved ones, but also for us. If you've had a divorce, show them how to grieve fully and live fully and do it with dignity. A betrayal, those things make us human. You know, you're not in the game of life if you haven't been through these things. Job loss, show people how it's done. And I'll tell you, one of the things that's so important is grief gets passed down through generations. Healing yourself will help those around you and those who come afterwards. So thank you so much for being a part of this program. Thank you for joining this masterclass with David Kessler. If any of this information sparked your curiosity, I really encourage you to explore David's full commune course, Help for the Hurting Heart, at onecommune.com grief. There you can sign up to access the content for free for five days. That's onecommune.com grief. 
As David teaches, you can't ignore grief. You can't run from it. It tends to catch up. Our culture often tries to gloss over or skip grief with positive thinking, but all of your feelings are important. The solution is to understand how to attend to your grief and give it the time and the space that it needs. This course will show you how. Thanks for learning and for growing with Commune. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. Thank you.